let me ask you this. How, how does this kid from South Central Los Angeles in the Watts area, raised by a single mother in the gang and drug infested neighborhood of Watts, how did you get involved with speaking to the culture of where we are according to the cultural apologetics that you represent? Uh, well, first, I had an incredible mother. Um, when I got old enough to find a little trouble or for trouble to find me, depending on your definition, uh, she shipped me out, man. And God got on a Greyhound bus for three days. And we went from Los Angeles, California to Beaufort, South Carolina, where I lived with her oldest brother, who was a retired drill instructor in the Marine Corps. Uh, I spent about a year, year and a half living there. And uh, that, that was the first change in my life. Um, the other change, of course, was when my first year in college, um, I heard the gospel and came to faith in Jesus Christ. You've written a controversial book when it comes to being a, a, a Black American, African American, going against a culture that tells you about these writings. Oh, you're an Uncle Tom, or you're a traitor. You, you, you've, you've, you know, you've let us down. You betrayed us. How do you respond to the culture that says those kind of things? And, and even in your own race, uh, when you write a book like this, you're not only writing it to educate people, but you're writing to re-educate the same culture that you probably grew up on. Yeah, you know, I've been preaching for over 30 years and have, you know, always held controversial positions and have never shied away from the things that I believe um, I, you know, cultural apologetics is my area of emphasis. So that's just the kind of thing that I won't say I've gotten used to. I hope I never get, you know, used to that. But my skin's a lot thicker than it was. And I learned how to, uh, first of all, not pay attention to a lot of that stuff. Um, and secondly, just recognize that, you know, my attitude is always no matter you know, what a person says about me. The worst thing you can say about me is not as bad as the worst thing about me, I guarantee. You know, where did this social justice movement, the, the critical race theory ideology, can you give us a little background just to hint, you write about it in your book because this has been looming from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, 50s and 60s but in 1989, I believe you write that a very important meeting took place that catapulted this conversation to where we are today. Can you explain a little bit about that? You had this first meeting really of critical race theorists. That's, that's their, their first sort of organized meeting. It happened in Wisconsin, but the ideology um, the academic theory was really born at uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, Derek Bell was the um, really main catalyst there. Kimberly Crenshaw was his protege. Kimberly Crenshaw is the one who gives us the idea of intersectionality. Now, I mean, we hear, we hear people talk about intersectionality all the time um, and these sort of, you know, intersecting um, lines of oppression. Um, so if you're a minority, you're oppressed. If you're a woman, you're oppressed. If you're a sexual minority, you're oppressed. And so a black female lesbian uh, or, or transgender would have more oppression than say a white Christian male 
you know, would, actually a white Christian male would be the oppressor. Um, and so her main paper on that was also published in 1989. Also, um, Peggy McIntosh's paper on white privilege. Um, the idea of white privilege had been talked about before then, but the seminal paper on that is Peggy McIntosh's paper that was published in 1989. And also there was a book published by two Harvard professors called After the Ball, How America Will Overcome Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the Decade of the 90s, I believe is the, the subtitle. Um, but it is a propaganda piece on basically changing the way people think about homosexuality um, by piggybacking on the civil rights movement and really, you know, sort of critical race theory type of ideas. Hey, everybody, welcome back to part two of my conversation with the one and only Vody Bauckham. Let's get back to my interview. Listen, if you just tuned in, you're watching, you're listening to the author of the brand new book, Fault Lines, Vody Bauckham. This book right here is shaking the nations, it's shaking the culture, it's shaking educational systems, institutions, it's shaking theologians, it's shaking the church, it's shaking pastors, and I hope it shakes you. We must know what we're dealing with in our culture right now. We must understand what we're listening to in this very hour. What you hear, what you follow, what you like, what you share could be something that you have no idea what's behind it. America right now is brewing up what I believe and what I think you believe is a race war. We are on that verge of that race war. When you watch what's taking place, how, listen, I understand. I understand why you're angry. I was there once in my life when the cops were beating me up and jumping me and arresting me just for being Latino in the streets, looking like a gang member and, and, and doing things that I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to be doing, and I felt it was injustice. I understand when you watch videos of how an African-American gets treated versus a white American gets treated when they get stopped by the cops. I understand what it is when you walk into a room and people want to uh, racial profile you versus the person that walks behind you with a suit with and their, their skin color is different. But America is at the tipping point, Vody. You call it perhaps we are on that verge of having this race war that could potentially perhaps become a civil revolution. Do you believe that? I think all you have to do is look back at last summer. And anybody who looks back at last summer and, you know, sort of the, the, the violence that broke out and that is in some ways still breaking out in places like Portland, for example, um, we're in trouble. And the animosity between people especially the words that we use, right? Um, especially the way we talk about white people and the way we talk about whiteness, the way we demonize whiteness these days. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it, it worries me. It worries me a great deal about, n number one, what has already happened, and secondly, what may follow. 
why are we demonizing whiteness? Where does that come from? Why are we demonizing the white people and the white communities and making especially Christian white men, Christian white women, Christian children that are white? Why? Where did this come from? Yeah, and I, I spent some time talking about this in the book, but that's part of this ideology of critical race theory. Um, you know, this this idea that you know, whiteness was created specifically for the purpose of oppressing people of color. Um, and, you know, whiteness is seen as an ideology, um, which is interesting because even though people say whiteness is an ideology, they point to white people as the purveyors of that ideology. Um, and so whiteness creates white supremacy, it creates white privilege, um, it creates, you know, white complicity and a bunch of other, you know, issues there. But this is all part of that ideology of, of critical race theory. And so you hear a lot of it. Um, you know, I, I, I follow a couple of pages that, you know, um, get, that, that keep up with quotes and, you know, statements and tweets and stuff like that from people who are in the Christian community but you know, very much committed to this ideology. And it amazes me some of the things that people uh, who claim to be Christians say about an entire group of people. You know, when you, when you castigate and demonize an entire group of people, there's a word for that and it's called racism. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, I, I gotta ask you this because you're 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 bringing so many different thoughts to my mind right now, and I gotta ask you this: How do we recognize the looming catastrophe of the new religion that you write about? Listen, people, you gotta go get this book. You gotta educate yourself. You can't just take one side and run with it. You gotta be balanced enough to get both sides, read both sides, and educate yourself on the both spectrums of the conversation. You can't just rely on one side and, and run with it, especially if you're a Christian. I'm not worried about the non-Christian person. They're going to do what they want to do, and they're going to stand for what they stand for. They're going to do what they do, no matter what you tell them. But if you're a Christian and you believe in the gospel, in the true gospel, and if you realize in, 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 in the New Testament, it talks about a new gospel infiltrating the church, a new message infiltrating the church, how do we recognize the new, the, the, this catastrophe that is looming around the corner that is now being recognized as a religion and has infiltrated, I keep using that word, infiltrated the evangelical church in our time right now? I think one of the things you look for is adjectives around justice. When people start talking about social justice, economic justice, racial justice, um, you know, whenever we whenever we start talking about these things, I think it, red flags ought to go off. Um, and one of the things that we need to ask people is, what does injustice look like? And if people start pointing to, um, you know, unequal outcomes as evidence of injustice, then we know that we're talking about this ideology of critical social justice. And I do identify it as a religion. Um, in the book, uh, it, it has a lot of religious tendencies. They have their own cosmology. They have their own theology, their own saints, say their names. 
Um, they have their own their own catechism. Um, you know, they have their own liturgy. Um, but what they don't have is redemption. There is no redemption in in the social justice movement. You have to do the work of anti-racism, and the work of anti-racism is never done. Mm, wow. I want to talk about a few things here that you write in this book, because I think we are after seeking true justice. And true justice sometimes is misspelled by not understanding what you're reading, just like you mentioned. Let's talk about a few things that we want to understand. Let's talk about Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, the, 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 the phrase, the, the, the sticker on it, seems you know unique it seems right it seems and it feels right black lives do matter they should matter why why what's behind the ideology and 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 the quote of black lives matter that you feel it has a dangerous uh unique position to why christians should not be back in this movement yeah black lives matter is um, a statement that comes out of an organization. Um, you, you can't really separate them. This organization is an openly Marxist, an openly anti-Christian, openly anti-family, openly um, pro-LGBTQIA plus movement. Um, you know, they had as one of their goals um, the idea of undermining the nuclear family, um, you know, that's who these people are. Uh, the organization was founded and rooted in bearing false witness uh, about a couple of very particular cases, the Trayvon Martin case um, and the Michael Brown case. Um, you know, the, and so there's so much about this organization um, that is just absolutely corrupt, ruined from the ground up. And then when you talk about the phrase, um, the phrase Black Lives Matter is based on the assumption that until we said the phrase, we lived in a culture in America where Black lives didn't matter. And that is just patently false. There is a redefinition of America that is going on right now. You know, things like the 1619 Project, trying to sort of, you know, refocus our understanding of what America is and to cause us to think that America is an inherently and irreparably racist, oppressive country. When the fact of the matter is, America is arguably the least racist country in the world. I'll say that again. America is arguably the least racist country in the world. Black and brown people are in America are the healthiest, the safest, the wealthiest, and most prosperous black and brown people on the face of the earth. That's why black and brown people from every country where black and brown people are found are trying to get to America because they know we're lying when we say America is racist, because it's not. But what happens, help me understand this, and I tell my viewers this all the time, I'm a student of the Bible. I'm a student of life. I'm a student of learning, always learning from my guests that have written books and they have held positions of education and, and theology. Help me understand this because I get this question a lot. How can I believe what you just said 
when what I see on television, what, I, what we see that is being captured on social media of the difference of how police officers are treating the black and the brown community versus how they treat the white Caucasian community, how can I believe what you just said if what I'm seeing is different than what I'm being shown? It's like I'm ripped between the two. How, yeah. Help well, me understand that. What, one of the things that we have to recognize is that we're not being shown everything. You know, in the book, for example, I talk about Tony Tempa. Uh, Tony Tempa, you know, was killed in Dallas, Texas in 2016. Tony Tempa was a schizophrenic who was off his meds and on drugs. He called the police for help. By the time they got there, he had already been subdued by a security guard. And three police officers subdued Tony Tempo with their neck, with their knee on his neck and back for 14 minutes, right? George Floyd was about nine minutes, Tony Tempo 14 minutes. But they also mocked Tony Tempo while they had him down there on the ground. And when it was all said and done, Tony Tempo was dead. They didn't release the tape for over a year. And that was when the Dallas Morning News um, got an injunction demanding that the tape be released. Now, nobody knows Tony Tempa's name. Tony Tempa's family didn't get $27 million. They didn't get a million dollars. None of the three officers who killed Tony Tempa have been arrested, and they were all back on duty. Why? Because Tony Tempa was white. And it doesn't fit the narrative. It is simply not true that the police are going out hunting down and killing black men. It is absolutely not true. Police every year kill about a thousand Americans. About 500 of those are black, are white rather, and about 250 of those or so are black. There are far more white people killed by police than there are black people killed by police. Even unarmed, there are more unarmed white people killed by police than there are unarmed black people killed by police. Um, but again, this narrative is so pervasive and I talk about in the book a number of interviews that took place and a number of surveys and studies that have taken place where people actually believe the number of unarmed black men killed by the police every year is in the, you know, four, five hundred to a thousand, when in fact it's usually somewhere around 15. So one of the problems is that there's a narrative that has become so pervasive that we believe it to be true. And then somebody shows us a video and we say, aha, see, there it is. Proof of the narrative that we've come to believe is true. Um, but the facts just don't bear it out. You even write about, I'm, I'm, I was very surprised that you even write, but I, I'm surprised, but then again, I'm not. I, maybe I was surprised at the what what you found the facts to be behind the Colin Kaepernick even situation that took place in 2016, it almost, again, the narrative. Do you feel like the media is creating this narrative of what we are experiencing right now, of how we are responding to what I believe the revolution against race wars that may take place if we don't get a hold of this? Yeah, it's absolutely... Uh, a media-driven narrative. And it's not just a media-driven narrative, it's also a social media-driven narrative. Um, you know, I, I give examples later in the book 
of people, for example, who've gone on social media and talked about how they were racially profiled and how they were mistreated by the police. And then the police released the videotape and it absolutely did not happen. Um, I, I give a few examples of that. That's not to say that the police never mistreat anyone. You know, you and I know better than that. You know, I, I've been mistreated by the police. You know, you talked about being mistreated by the police. So I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But what I'm saying is that there are a lot of people um, who are making things up. Um, and there are a lot of people who are portraying only one type of event and only one type of scenario in order to advance a narrative. And that narrative is being advanced in order to advance an ideology. And that ideology is being advanced because at the end of the day, it's about power. Mm. Wow, there you, that, that's it. It's about power. It's about who has power over the culture, who has power over religion, who has power over the community. It's everything goes back to power. People will kill their own mother over power. I've seen it happen in the inner city. Power corrupts. Power will, listen, the Bible talks about corruption in the heart. Isn't it amazing, Vody, that we have found technology to visit outside of earth. We have created technology to have, you know, electrical cars. We found technology to do so many different things in the world, but we have not found one piece of technology that can fix the heart. I got to ask you this. I, I, I love talking about the problems and all that that is taking place, but I also love solutions. Solutions is what saved my life. Solutions is why I'm sitting here. I'm a kid from East LA. The world said, lock them up, throw the key away. And here I am by the grace of God, hosting my own national television program, talking to the one and only, one of the greatest author of our time, Bodie Bauckham. Listen, only God can do this. God can do it for you when you find the solution. I got to ask you this. What is the solution? How do we stop this critical race theory movement that, that we're seeing right now? What's the answer? Yeah, I think we have a tremendous opportunity right now because people are, are talking about race and they're talking about justice. And there is no greater source or authority in the world on race and ethnicity or justice than the Bible. Um, you know, we have you know, passages in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2 and Galatians 3, for example, um, this, this idea that Christ unites us in himself, breaks down the dividing wall and makes us one. This idea that there is but one race because we were all created by God, created in Adam. We all come from Adam. There are many ethnicities, but there is only one race. And as Christians, we have an opportunity to talk to people about that right now. When it comes to justice, um, you know, we have the law of God, which points us to what justice is and to what injustice is. And if people are interested in understanding what justice is, it is a tremendous opportunity for us to talk to them about the one who is just and about Christ who died in order to atone for our injustice and to make us right with God and right with one another. And so the answer 
is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The answer is the cross. The answer is our redemption and reconciliation that is only found in Christ. There you have it. Wow. Listen, I, I thank you for your time. I thank you for coming on to talk about the book, to talk about the message. I cannot let you leave until you pray for the viewing audience. Is there any last message you want them to know about why they should read this book? And then I want you to just pray for the nation, pray for those that are watching that may find themselves at the, at the gate and they're afraid to enter because they're leaving a whole culture. We're walking, we're leaving everything that we thought our identity was. I want to give you this time to just give me one last message on why we need to read this book. And then I want you to pray for those watching. You know, I wrote this book because I believe that there is a threat to the gospel. And my hope is that people will read the book and not only see the threat, but more importantly, see the gospel and see the truth to which we hold and see how important it is for us to stand for that truth and to defend that truth. And I, I am hopeful. And my desire is that when people come away from the book, that they come away uh, hope, not just informed, but also hopeful as well. There you have it. Can you pray for us before we leave, Vody? And then we got to yeah. go. My time is gone. I cannot believe this. What an amazing honor it is to have you on the program and to talk to you and create this friendship. And I got to come and see you in Africa. I got to be there. I got to I gotta shake your hand. Or maybe when you're back on the States, uh, we got to get together here on the orange couch and let's just talk about old days in South Central and in East L.A. and how God took a kid from South Central and East L.A. and now we're here preaching the gospel around the world. Amen. That sounds good to me, man. Amen. Pray for us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we bow before you in humble adoration humble adoration for who you are and for what you've done and humble adoration for the privilege of knowing you and being known by you and humble adoration of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we bow before you, we thank you for this time that you've given us. And we pray that you would take our feeble words and that you would use them in order to bring glory and honor to Christ and then also to inform and equip your people. I pray that you would also beyond that use this to call your people together in Christ, to unite us, to reconcile us in Christ. I pray for those under the sound of my voice who have been not, who have not been reconciled to Christ, who have not come to him for the pardon of their sins. And I pray, Father, that you would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that you'd remove the scales from their eyes and cause them to see Christ in all of his glory and majesty and to flee to him for forgiveness and for salvation. And Father, in all of these things, we pray that you would continue to conform us to the image of Christ, that we might continue to be reconciled to him and to one another, and that you might use us to bring glory and honor to your name. For we pray all of this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to thank my special guest. My time has run out. 
Vodi Bakum, all the way from Zambia, Africa. Get the book today, Fault Lines. This book right here is going to educate you, is going to empower you. And I want to tell you something. This is the hour where we need true voices to stand out from the culture, even from within the church. God has called you to be one of those voices. I hope you know one thing, that God loves you. He really does. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Uh, uh, uh.